0: If a vulnerability had a color, what it what would it be for you? <laughs> what, a, what a lovely question. <laughs>
1: that is beautiful. I have never thought about it like that. You're you're inviting me to be emotionally synesthetic. Um, what Absolutely. color? What color would it have? Um, somewhere between the color of dawn and the color of dusk.
0: I believe everybody has a story. And Dhani has been all about these stories coming from opinions, personal experiences, life lessons, and so much more. And somewhere along the lines, we find ourselves being part of these stories, or they being part of us, in nooks and crannies, in crumbs, in echoes, and reflections. Our guest today is Padre Gautama, a poet, a theologian and an extremely engaging public speaker. Padreig's work is lyrical, pragmatic and extremely vulnerable. In this podcast we talk about Patrick's work with On Being, his poetry, him as a child growing up to be a poet, a theologian, a community worker, We also talk about the beauty, um, the risks, and the vulnerabilities of being vulnerable. And last but not the least, Padraig shares with us um, a quote by Rumi and his personal reflection on that quote. This podcast is profound in many ways. You might want to sit in a quiet corner and listen to this. And whilst you're at it, Our website, dhani.online, is updated and refreshed. Have a look. Padraig, what an honor and delight for me. Thank you so much.
1: Thank you, Sadhya. It's lovely to be with you.
0: You know, I uh, heard of uh, you on a podcast uh, at On Being, and then I was going through your website, and uh, one of... um, um, a, a feedback, a testimonial was which said, deeply moving and thought-provoking poetry, which invites readers to let the sacred reach into them, touching their vulnerability and opening their hearts. So when I read that, I <laughs> I was floored because that's uh-huh. all that requires um me to sort of uh, um, look out for you and uh, and then very generously you reached out. And here we are talking. So um, diving right in. Uh, who's Padraig? Why poetry? What's uh, this this being project that you're doing?
1: Um, well, so I'm Irish. I'm from County Cork and I live in the north on the border between County Fermanagh and Donegal in Ireland. Um, I am in my mid forties and I trained in theology and conflict and I've been um, fascinated by poetry ever since I was a child. The Irish school curriculum is filled with learning poetry in two languages, Irish and English. And so poetry was always a part of my life. Um, Mm -hmm. And I've always loved radio as well, (laughs) right from the word, like when I was younger, I you know, around those times in the 80s when those kind of little almost credit card sized tiny FM radios came out that you could pu- plug bad earphones into. um, My dad gave me one and I used to stay up late at night listening to the radio and headphones. Um, I used to love scrolling through AM and finding any kind of radio station, um, sometimes in different languages. Um, I just loved somehow the, the being you know, in bed, in darkness, listening to the sound of um, radio coming from somewhere else, especially back in the 80s when, you know, the reception wasn't great. There was a sense that it kind of was coming over the sea. You could hear the distance in it. Um, And the crackles. And the crackles, yeah. In fact, I listened to, um, what was it, Um, Radio Luxembourg. I listened to their last night of broadcasting in the late 80s. Radio Luxembourg had been this really important radio station and um, broadcasting all around Europe, and it had a whole magnificent history to it. And I remember listening to the last night of their broadcasting before they closed down. Then there was another radio station that started off, Atlantic 252, and they started off, they called themselves that because of where they were located. They were trying mm-hmm. to get around, you know, licensing laws. I remember too, we used to listen to the local radio station in Cork, Um, that's terrible, it'll come back to me in a sec what it was called. Um, And then there was this new law came in about so-called pirate radio stations and half the time that was just commercial radio stations, not wanting people to have as much choice so that they'd listen to theirs and they could boost their listenership numbers and therefore boost their advertising revenue. So all of that goes to say that radio has been a part of my life, all of my life. And um, about 15 years ago, maybe longer, 16 years ago. I happened across uh, a podcast from the United States that was presented by Krista Tippett. And, you know, I, I gathered from reading about her that she had worked in diplomacy um, and in Berlin with the American government and that she had studied in theology as well and worked for a period of time as a chaplain as part of those studies and was very interested in people's stories and was doing these long form interviews, 50, 55 minutes interviewing a poet or a theologian or an activist. Um, Generous, deeply researched, not looking for controversial points of disagreement and shouting at each other, but with deep appreciation going into difficult conversations sometimes. And I thought, who is this person on the radio? And I haven't missed an episode ever since. Um, yeah. And then I got to know Krista as years went by, um, my work in community relations in the north of Ireland, looking at conflict and the legacy of conflict was of interest to her and her colleagues as they began to think about the social impact of their radio program. Um, and so I led a few retreats with them. And then a few years ago, Krista asked, would I ever be interested in collaborating with them on a new poetry podcast that they were wanting to put together? It didn't have any shape or a name at that stage. And I said, of course I would. I'd be delighted. And um, so myself and Krista and um, Liliana Maria, Percy Ruiz... <coughs> We um, put together this idea, and each person contributed um, different ideas to what it would look like, and it's ended up as this poetry podcast called Poetry Unbound, where we take a single poem, we read it, I I offer a reflection on it, and then read it again. It's as simple as that, about twelve minutes long, and um, we do about forty poems a year, forty-five poems a year, um, Mondays and Fridays during the two seasons, and it's meditative. The idea is to meet a poem with the story of your life and it's for people who want to know more about entering into poetry but using a poem kind of as a meditation.
0: You know, you're absolutely right because when I heard um, uh, your one of your reflections, it, uh, I mean, it had the rhythm to it and it had, mm-hmm. it had the lyrical sort of flow to it. But what I felt was that it was Sort of painfully and sort of achingly raw.
1: Mm. I am interested in poetry that can be vulnerable about itself. Um, I suppose I'm interested in poetry that opens up the world through the story of the poem, through some piece of sadness or joy or celebration or lament um, in the poem, and where the poet isn't in a driving seat of pure control, but nonetheless, but is rather in a an opening up of the heart, their own or whoever is speaking in the poem, some piece of history, some hope that they have, some moment that changed them, some unexpected encounter, some piece of a story of the impact of colonization. All of these things are of profound interest. Some poems are religious as well. They take the material from a person's religious background, but offer that up in a way that isn't just for the adherence of that religion, but rather open it up in terms of the story of what it means to be a person. Other poems are about, you know, self-forgiveness or the story of being in your own body and awkwardness about being in your body. All of these things, I think, um, have a wide curiosity from people who are listening. And unfortunately, sometimes I think that the education around poetry can mean that folks can feel like, oh, you need to have loads of degrees in literature and mythology before you can appreciate a poem. And I don't think that's true. And so we offer, I hope, narrative hospitality to people who want to enjoy the story of a poem and feel like the poem is um, interesting to them and that the poem is interested in the listener as well.
0: So true. So, so when you said that we really don't need that sort of academic uh, past or some sort of a, a degree, what do you really need to understand poetry?
1: Well, I think there's a few things that can help when it comes to a poem, and time is one of them. <laughs> I don't think you can skim read a poem mm. um, yeah. if there's a poet that you like or whose work you find intriguing, finding a volume of their poems and reading through it, sometimes it can help to know a little bit about that poet and maybe the time that they wrote it. Often the book might have a little bit about that in it um, and I just think that what what's needed is is time. Um, to read a few poems at a time, five, six minutes, not to rush through. But also, it's time to listen to yourself as well. Because often, I think, a legacy of education can be that people think, oh, because I don't understand one reference, therefore I'll not understand anything. And the Mm -hmm. invitation is to think, the poem is um, interested in you as you're interested in it. And so, can it be possible for... Um, a person to read a poem and to see a reference on line two to maybe some piece of mythology and go, Oh, I don't get that. Let me keep on reading it. And to listen to yourself as you listen to the poem and to see a line to go, Oh, that really moves me. And then it might be at some point, if there's a literary reference, you might find that out later on. But nonetheless, you've already had your own relationship with the poem. There's a famous poem of Yeats that I've known since I was, I don't know, eight or nine. And it's a poem that makes reference to the Irish Revolution, but at the age of eight or nine, I didn't know what that was about, really. <laughs> but mm-hmm. I loved the music of it, and I, I'll recite it for you if it's okay, because I've known this since I was a child. Um, Dance there upon the shore. What need you have to care for wind or waters roar and tumble out your hair that the salt drops of wet. Being young, you have not known the fool's triumph, nor yet love lost as soon as one nor all the sheaves to bind what need you have to dread the monstrous crying of the wind it's beautiful in fact i left out a line: nor the best laborer dead but there's so much um there's so much music in it and i just loved the rhythm of it um being young you have not known the fool's triumph nor yet love lost as soon as one and tumble out your hair that the salt drops have wet that gorgeous line, you can see hair tumbling out, filled with the Absolutely. salt drops. Yeah. Um, and I don't know, I didn't know what that was about. I just liked the sound of it. And that was okay when I was eight. It's perfectly fine. And you know what? I'm 45 now. It would be okay now if I also didn't understand the reference to it, but I, mm. en- I appreciated the music to it. So there's all mm. kinds of ways to go into a poem. And it's not like you understand, you need to understand everything about a poem in order to appreciate it, because the poet doesn't either. I mean, I've had people read some of my poems and say to me, oh, look at that. Look at what you did there. That's so clever. And I think, I don't know who did that, but it wasn't me. (laughs) So um, (laughs) art often knows itself and art reveals us back to ourselves as artists. And so the idea that full knowledge and full comprehensibility is the only way into a poem, I think, or a piece of art, I think that's limited. What we're looking for in art is a conversation between the piece of art and whoever's appreciating it. And that conversation can go in all kinds of ways.
0: Mm. Um, Parthiv, when you were when you were just talking, and and again, there has to be a certain sensitivity, as you said, where one of your sensory organs sort of tunes into right. It could be the enunciation, it could be the rhythm, it could be the music. So all that does come from a platform of awareness a platform Mm. of vulnerability my question here is why is vulnerability such sort of thought of as a is thought of as a task Mm. which is sort of difficult which comes after aches or it's achy or it's Mm. painful and it's sort of a breakthrough why Mm.
1: Why? I wonder, I mean, there's this idea, I suppose, that we can get through life without vulnerability or that vulnerability costs us, certainly vulnerability can be abused if you're not speaking with somebody who's going to treat your vulnerability with sensitivity. Vulnerability is a risk, and I don't think we ever get to the stage where vulnerability isn't going to be a risk. How can we pay attention? to um, that constant tuning of that muscle of vulnerability in us. Um, in many places, not in all, but in many places, vulnerability will be rewarded with a more earnest conversation, something that goes to the heart. And that can happen in workplaces, that can happen um, in broadcasting, that can happen in writing. Um, I, I would like for it to happen in politics, but um, the last number of years have not given us much evidence of that. But we do see it in other corners. You can think of some of the things that happened in the 1990s, um, like, you know, the free elections in South Africa, the Good Friday Agreement in Ireland, different things that happened there in the midst of a very difficult decade of the 1990s. There were some ways within which collaboration and vulnerability and coming together were being platformed in public in a way where we were honouring that kind of leadership. That seems to be often turned away now. But yet I look to Jacinda Ardern in New Zealand and the way within which her putting forward of a way of leadership that is um, countering of a certain bullshy kind of masculinist approach, Her, her approach to leadership is filled with power and strength and inclusion and curiosity and collaboration. And I think that that is a vulnerability to not play an old game of, of domineering power. So I, I think vulnerability might save us, but it will always come with a risk because there will always be somebody who will wish to exploit that. And the question is, is in the face of that reality that there will always be the exploiters, what nonetheless will we do? Do we give them the power to say, well, because vulnerability can be exploited, therefore I won't use it? Or do we try to build some kind of broad consensus that will seek to silence those who would wish to dominate vulnerability and rather would seek to elevate the practice of it in public.
0: Absolutely right. So um, you, you're, you're you're absolutely right. But but is this risk sort of mandatory if you are to understand the work of nature, the work of the universe, uh, your own awareness? Um, yeah, I think
1: it is. Um, and
0: by mandatory, I
1: don't think that you have to broadcast it. But I do think that internally, we're all going to have to face questions of vulnerability. And um, mm-hmm. that can happen through all kinds of media, you know, whether whether because of an illness or whether because a global pandemic or whether because things change and your job that you thought would be your job won't be anymore or a relationship ends or you find yourself feeling alone. Um, all of these things um, demand uh, a disposition of vulnerability internally to pay attention to the ways within which we can feel battered by a life. And that isn't to say that our privacies need to be made public. No, mm-hmm. but that even if only in a private conversation, I do think it is going to be mandatory to have some way of talking about that to yourself and maybe some others too um, in private. Um, that I, I I can't imagine a life, being a life without that invitation. And it's a complicated invitation, but we know so much about what it's like when we have to face up to the impact of sadness or the impact of prejudice and the impact of our own limitations too, and to try to find a way to live through that. I I don't see that we can ever fantasize about a life of certitude that has so much power and dominance that it would be separate from those things. There will always be things that will arrest our attention and say that the Control we fantasize about having is not a control that we that is
0: full. Nailed it. You nailed it. <laughs> so I mean, from experience and I from from looking around myself, I can say that uh, this this muscle of ours of, of vulnerability is sort of bruised and battered a lot more than it is appreciated. Mm. So how do you recover from a bruised, battered?
1: Hmm. Um, Well, hopefully with friends, you know, where you can talk that somebody was a bit of a bastard to you and that people will go, yeah, they were being a bastard to you, you know, Um, rather than becoming cynical. Because I think sometimes the invitation is to think, well, let me protect myself from all of that by being hard nosed and cynical. But I think ultimately we are. We are wounding ourselves if if in all aspects of our life we have to be hard nosed and cynical. I do understand that you don't want to be vulnerable or don't feel safe in being vulnerable in many places. But I would hope that each person would have some friend, some artistic practice, some spiritual practice, some um, spouse or um, somebody in their family with whom they can talk about um, what it's like to live from the heart and what it's like to be understood and what it's like to have yourself being understood. And people, too, who can say difficult things for you to hear, but that are calling you to the heart and asking you to not be so cynical in public. I think those are the kind of practices that we can pay attention to. Um, I do yoga. I did gymnastics as a child, so I'm very flexible. Um, And I didn't do too much exercise really in my 30s. And so now in my 40s, I'm trying to come back to it. And um, when I do the heart opening poses in yoga, Um, I'm so moved by how literally opening in your body the space of your chest, you know, in a bridge pose or cobra pose or wheel pose, any of these poses, um, sometimes I can feel the vulnerability of opening that up. And that's just either by myself um, or in a yoga studio where I know nobody's going to abuse um, the vulnerability of the body opening your chest um, mm. in that space but nonetheless there's the invitation to myself to do that at times I found it too much um, I went through a grief earlier on this year a friend died in fact a few friends died this year and I oh, found dear. the heart opening poses really demanding and that was okay because mm. sometimes I thought well maybe today isn't a day when I can do that you know it's not about pushing through and achieving it because it's not a competition It is about saying, oh, today I can feel that my body wants to shelter itself. Um, And so I think, I suppose what I'm trying to say is that practices of conversation with people are very important, but I also think embodied practices um, are phenomenally important. Taking a walk or doing some exercise or doing some yoga, whatever it is that does it for the person, finding a way that your body too can be in conversation with yourself as you think about what vulnerability looks like.
0: Beautiful. If a vulnerability had a color, what it, what would it be for you? Oh, what, what a lovely <laughs> question.
1: <laughs> that is beautiful. I have never thought about it like that. You're, you're inviting me to be emotionally synesthetic. Um, what Absolutely. Color, what color would it have? Um, somewhere between the color of dawn and the color of dusk. Yeah, I think that's what I'd think. Sometimes those colors are, they mirror each other, but yet you can always tell the quality of light when the day is starting and the quality of light when the day is ending. And I love both of those turning points. So I think that's what I would think the color of vulnerability
0: would be. But you know what? This has to be, uh, this can be, this can vary depending on where you are geographically. That's true,
1: yeah. (laughs) But somewhere, I suppose I'm thinking of somewhere with a kind of a golden quality of light. Um, mm. yeah, as things close, but somehow there's there's a blue present in that too. There's the night blue, even when you see um, the sky change at night and there is that yellow or orange in the sky. There is that night blue that's coming into. And in the morning time also there's the there's the waking up into the day from the beautiful night. Um, and I think there's a different quality of night blue together with the yellow of sunrise, too. It's, it's, Exquisite. When Exquisite. I was younger, I had, a, I'm not a very good artist, but I doodled all the time. I still do, actually. Um, and I, I doodled um, a sun and a moon and a little boat on a sea in between the two. And I think that's what I'm describing, that being in between the sun and the moon, that mm. yellow, that red, that orange, that blue, somehow a way within which day and night are all together part of an entire cycle. I think that's what, that's the color of vulnerability.
0: You know, I was just going to say that, uh, uh, have you ever drawn? Because as you, and you just said that you've never been an artist, but you just drew a beautiful uh, canvas uh, (laughs) in front of us with your words, which Mm. is absolutely um, exquisite. Um, So this means that if I go around uh, Northern Ireland and see an orb, orange, Slash blue, it might be you.
1: <laughs> That's right. You never know. You never know. Yeah. I don't wear blue very much. I can often find it a cold color, but I do love night blue and dawn blue. Those are different things for me.
0: Yeah. Mm. <laughs> so, um, just coming towards the end of the podcast, which poet poem? I would say poet, we'd stick to that, has, has sort of inspired you, has sort of made you think, has sort of perhaps been um, initiated those creative juices to flow.
1: Um, I think Patrick Kavanagh is a poet whose work has moved me enormously. He died in the 70s. Um, He was a man in his 60s. Um, He was a complicated poet. He was from a rural area. He moved to Dublin um, hoping to find a poetic community because he really was something quite extraordinary as a poet. But the literary community in Dublin when he moved there um, often were quite well-to-do and they were fantasizing about the peasant poet. The peasant poet was this archetype that showed up in the poems of lots of well-to-do Dublin poets. And then arrives into Dublin a peasant poet and they hated him. They were awful to him. And it turned him very cynical and he Mm. wrote really astute, precise, penetrating criticism for many years. And he made a lot of enemies, really, because his his poetic powers were so brilliant, but his disappointment really where he was from, his sense that he didn't know enough about culture, he didn't know enough about the great myths, um, that that sense of disappointment um, and hope dashed really. Um, affected him for a long time and in the last 10 years of his life, um, he met someone and fell in love and, um, he had some health turns and all of those things turned him back towards writing the kind mm-hmm. of poetry that had come from his early life. Mm-hmm. And it is so beautiful. I hated him when I was younger. We studied so many of his poems in school and I despised his work. <laughs> um, but when I moved away to Australia, for some reason, the day I was leaving. I was in the city with my my parents and some of my siblings, and I went into a bookshop and bought a collected volume of his poetry. And my sister said, "Um, I thought you hated him. And I was like, I know, I do. I don't know why I just bought this, but I needed to. And somehow reading him when I was away, I was caught up in his yearning for something, um, his sense of being torn, and yet his capacity to see beauty in places that he thought made him seem backward or rural. And the way that he turned all of that around to say, this is exactly the place where, as he says, God will be found. And he's not speaking about God within the confines of Catholic religion. He's speaking about God within the confines of the extraordinary power of creativity, that you'll find mm. this in a, in a humble place where nobody important ever looked.
0: Mm. How oh, beautiful. Can I make a request? Yeah, uh, you know, much has been written about uh, uh, the mystic Rumi. Of and um, and he originally wrote in, in Farsi slash yeah. Persian. And so it's been translated. Would you be able to share a reflection with us of, yeah. um, you know, I don't know, a quote, quote, a poem, anything?
1: Yeah, I've got a quote. I mean, I was introduced to Rumi's work by an interview that Krista Tippett, who started off the studio and project where I work. Um, did with um, Fatima Asgawar and Fatima has translated some Rumi's work. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think it was there that I heard that at one point um, Rumi was asked by a Christian church um, in Iran if he would give them an inscription for putting over the door of their church. And Rumi Mm -hmm, was mm -hmm. Muslim, a teacher of Sharia law. And some contemporary translations of Rumi seem to strip away all of his Islamic identity and his um, adherence and his devotion, as well as his recognition and his um, devotion to Sharia law. And I think that's a great injustice um, to an entire people, as well as to Rumi and his work. And so Rumi, as a Muslim teacher of Sharia law, offered this piece of writing for the inscription over the over the door of a christian church he says where jesus is the great hearted gather we are a door that's never locked and i think about that so often to think how is it that we across the world when somebody who doesn't come from a tradition that we share asks us for a kindness, that something can be said where you elevate the kindness of the other without trying to dominate or subjugate or colonize it. And often I think the the translations of Rumi have actually done the very thing that he isn't doing. They have tried to say, let's make him universal. And the way he has to be universal is to take away all the Muslim and Sharia law bits. And I think that's a terrible injustice to the brilliance of him. Where Jesus mm. is, the great-hearted gatherer. We are a door that's never locked. My God, what a gorgeous thing to give! You know, you see here that a, a gift requested is a gift given. That somebody knew Him to think He can give us something for us, and that a place of worship for one particular religion could be could could be opened with something over the door that comes from somebody who admires that religion without being an adherent of it. I think that practice is something that we could do with an enormous amount of um, today, where um, places of religion and worship could consider, how can we ask somebody who isn't part of our practice to offer us something that helps us be more of ourselves, knowing therefore that what we need is not everyone to believe the same thing, but that we need the kind of courtesy and understanding and poetry that can help us see parts of ourselves that we can't see with the help of others.
0: Wow. Wow. How amazing is that? And yes, if if, if only we were to follow what he said, uh, life uh, and the world would be so, uh, so peaceful and so, um, so filled with tolerance and appreciation.
1: Yeah. And, and turning to people, asking them for, for words to help us be more like ourselves without the desire to, to subjugate them into our way of thinking. I think there's such reciprocality in, in Rumi's work. I find that to be so moving. Yeah,
0: So powerful. Patrick, it's been absolutely delightful talking to you and I'm mm. actually looking uh, forward to your... Um uh, to more recitations and reflections on, on being. So thank you. Thank you for your work and thank you for your time. One last thing, if the listeners want to know more about you and your work, where can they find you?
1: Well, if you put, um, Poetry Unbound or On Being into any podcast app that you have, you can, um, find something there. Um, you can find the, the, you know, the links to the podcast. Um, in terms of my own work, if you put my own name into Google, um, Padre Gotoma, um I have a website and I've got links to work from there.
0: Brilliant. Brilliant. Thank you, sir. Thank you very, very much.
1: My pleasure. My pleasure. Thank you.